You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. take a look at Acts chapter 19 this morning. If you've got our sermon schedule, you notice a little bit of a change. Uh, we were going to be in Acts 18, but as I study through Acts 18, the Lord just kind of kept leading me to Acts 19. I'm going to give you a little background in 18 today, but we're actually going to be in 19 because I want to spend some time in Ephesus because Paul had his attention on Ephesus, and I want to show you this morning why his focus was so much on Ephesus and why he wanted to get something started in that area. In 1857, an architect by the name of Alexander Dawson, who lived in Australia, began looking for a place to build a lighthouse. And on the southern coastline of Australia, there was this one particular area that was extremely dangerous for ships as they were approaching a port in Australia. So there was, the need was very great for a lighthouse in that particular area so that ships could navigate their way into that port. So he began to draw up the plans, and he began to look for a proper site to build uh, this particular lighthouse. And he, he came up with a site and determined that this would be the best site for the lighthouse. So he draws up the plans, and he begins to go through the local officials and the boards and get all the approval. Well, as he was going through the board approval for the local city council and, and how things were being done in Australia at that time, uh, several questions were raised as to whether this particular location for this lighthouse was actually the best location because it just happened to be on that little outcropping of land out in the ocean was a huge amount of rocks and outcroppings of stones and cliffs. And, and so people began to question if this was really the best place to put the lighthouse because the concern was is if the lighthouse was in this particular area that ships may direct their attention towards that lighthouse because as you know as well as I do, any place you're at that's really dark, if you see light, what are you going to do? You're going to walk towards it. So the problem was is that the board and, and some of the other officials in town thought that if they put the lighthouse in that particular area, instead of directing ships around to the port, that they would actually come to the light and it would actually cause more shipwrecks. What's interesting is, is in that investigation as to why this particular architect chose that particular piece of land, they happened to find out that the architect owned a quarry. This is where they produced stones that would be used to build the lighthouse. And it just happened to be right next to the land that he was proposing to build the lighthouse on. So there was a financial benefit back to the architect to have this lighthouse built on this particular piece of land. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it was bribery or uh, just really good politics on behalf of this architect, he actually convinced the board to build the lighthouse right where he wanted it. And over 40 years after that lighthouse was built, for 40 years, shipwreck after shipwreck after shipwreck after shipwreck occurred. Exactly the fears that were, that were voiced by the councilman and by the board of directors at that time for that particular city, over 40 years there were over 24 shipwrecks because of that lighthouse. Because what they feared, it was exactly what happened. As soon as these ships out in this out of this vast ocean, would see the light, they would immediately turn their ship towards that light, not knowing that as they got closer to land, they needed to veer to the left and go around. And of course, they would drive their ships right into the stones. Even after 40 years, uh, they turned the light off in the lighthouse. They realized what a terrible, terrible idea this was. The, 
the lighthouse itself was built out of this kind of a soapstone that was very reflective. So even after they turned the light off in the lighthouse, these ships could still see the lighthouse on the shore because of the reflective nature of the stone, and they would still direct their ships towards that particular lighthouse, even though the light had gone out. Finally, over after a long period of time, another lighthouse was built, and, and people eventually began to turn their attention towards that lighthouse, and finally they just had to destruct, destroy this entire lighthouse so people wouldn't continue to drive their ships into danger. After Paul leaves Athens, after he leaves Athens, where we were at last week, he, he makes his way to Corinth. And, and Corinth is about 30 to 40 miles to the west of Athens. And in Corinth, he finds a whole new set of issues, a whole new set of problems. If you know anything about that first and second letter to the church at Corinth, you know that that church had a lot of issues. But nonetheless, as Paul goes in there, he's able to share the gospel. There are people who respond, and he, he finds some of the same exact pushback that he's found in several other areas. He meets a couple there by the name of Priscilla and Aquila who were already doing the work of the gospel in that particular area. And they, they become partners in the gospel and they, they begin to support one another by building tents together and, and supporting the church and sharing the gospel. And In Acts chapter 18, between verses 18 and 23, it records Paul in five verses traveling 1,500 miles. In just five verses, we have Luke giving us the account of him traveling some 1,500 miles. And Paul eventually makes his way to Ephesus. Now, on his first trip there, it's a very short trip. He's actually traveling back to Jerusalem and to Antioch. He's wrapping up his second missionary journey, but he stops at Ephesus. I believe that Paul had his heart and his eyes set on Ephesus for actually several years because he knew that there was something in Ephesus that demanded that the gospel have a strong presence in that area. Finally, Paul makes his way there. He's only there for a short period of time, and then he eventually makes his way back to Jerusalem, back to Antioch, and then he begins his third missionary journey. And then that third missionary journey, he starts out in his, his home base, Antioch, and he begins to travel back through Asia Minor, just like we, what we saw in his second missionary journey. And he goes through the churches of Galatia that he'd already established, and he checks on them and see, sees how things are going. But finally, Paul sets his attention to the southwest where he had wanted to go at the beginning of his second missionary journey, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't allow him. He finally makes it to Ephesus. And he's going to spend almost three years there. Now, what was it that was attracting Paul to Ephesus? If you think about Macedonia, when Paul travels over 130 miles from Asia Minor over to Macedonia, when he gets to Macedonia and he finds places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, he finds an area of commerce. You had a Roman road, the nation way that traveled through these areas. So there was tremendous amount of buying and selling and commerce all through Macedonia. So God directed Paul there to plant churches because there were people from all over the world traveling through there. And then eventually Paul makes his way to Athens. Athens happens to be the, the kind of the, the world seat of education, philosophy, and art. And there he has a debate with the philosophers and he begins to reason with them about all of these gods that they were worshiping that were no gods at all. But now Paul's going to find himself yet in a complete different set of circumstances than anything he's seen before. And I think this is exactly why Paul wanted to go to Ephesus. You see, in Ephesus, it was known for the mysterious religions of the world, specifically sorcery, magic. Uh, there were all kinds of things going on in Ephesus and it was all centered around one of the seven wonders of the world. In Ephesus, there was a temple 
to a false god named Diana. Now, Diana was referred to by the Romans, but Greek called, the Greeks called her Artemis. And right in the middle of, of Ephesus was this massive compound, a temple dedicated to the worship of Diana. This particular temple took 220 years to build. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. It's, the temple was 342 feet long, 164 feet wide. It was 56 feet tall. And around the outside of this rectangle was 61 columns holding up an amazing roof and a beautiful compound that was all as ornate in gold and silver. It was incredible. And when you walked to the inside of this temple, there was a wooden statue of a female. Diana, that people would come from all over the world to worship. And connected with the worship of Artemis or Diana was all kinds of sorcery and black magic and witchcraft. I mean, you name it, and it was happening in Ephesus. So just as much as Athens was known for art, philosophy, education, Ephesus was known for the place you went to fulfill all of your fleshly desires, and not only that, to engage in all kinds of ungodly sorcery and even demon activity happening in this particular city. I think this is exactly why Paul had his eyes set on Ephesus. One is because it was a very dark place. Two, because there were people from all over the world gathering there and engaging in things that, that was bringing all kinds of fleshly embodiment of worship of Diana. And Paul, instead of trying to, to sidestep around Ephesus, Paul sets his eyes on Ephesus. It seems as though Paul has a desire to go to some of the darkest places in that region so that he could take light to people who desperately needed to know the truth. It's almost as though Paul is so preoccupied with getting into Ephesus because it's such a dark city that he doesn't worry anything about the sorcery, the magic, the witchcraft, the worship of Diana. He doesn't worry about any of that. In this city are over 200,000 people, and the majority of them care nothing about Jehovah God, and the majority of them are completely enthralled with all kinds of sexual deviancy. If you read the two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, who happens to become the pastor of the church that Paul's going to plant there, you find out that in this particular city, the indulgence of the flesh was out in the open. It was not hidden in a back room somewhere. It was right out in the open. And I think that Ephesus, unlike probably any other city that we've looked at in the book of Acts, mirrors our own culture very closely. Not necessarily just the witchcraft, although that is growing and, 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 the, and the mysticism and the arts of mysticism in our, in our country is growing. People are looking for their spiritual fix and they're looking for it in any possible direction that they can find. But the culture of Ephesus, where they have thrown off any kind of inhibitions, sexually in particular, mirrors our own culture very, very closely. Ephesus, you see, was a stronghold of Satan. I believe Paul knew that. Now, certainly Satan had strongholds in Athens and Macedonia and Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. Certainly, we've seen that. We've seen that everywhere Paul goes because everywhere Paul goes, he's beaten up and thrown out of town. But Ephesus is different. In other words, Ephesus seems like ground zero for satanic influence. And Paul is not looking to walk around it. He's not looking to kind of work on the outskirts of town. Paul is going to go right downtown to Main Street, Ephesus, and he's going to proclaim the gospel, not with any fear, not with any reservation. And make no mistake about it, anywhere gospel light, anywhere the truth penetrates 
the strongholds of Satan, you, you better understand there's going to be a response. But what's interesting in the text we're going to look at today is the weird response and how we read it in, in the book of Acts. This is one of the strangest occurrences in the entire New Testament, what we're going to look at today. But what I want you to see is I want you to see past the strangeness of it, and I want you to see that this is actually Satan's response when the gospel light, when the truth of the gospel begins to penetrate an area where Satan has a stronghold. I want you to know what Satan does in response. Because we're going to see it right here in the pages and the verses in chapter 19. The church has been called to prevail over darkness. Jesus said about the church that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That we have as our marching orders the Great Commission to take the gospel, yes, even into dark, dark places. But often when we do, often when the gospel is, is elevated and preached and taught and lived, often what happens is counterfeits begin to show up. And what I want to show you this morning is this is a strategy of Satan himself. This is a strategy that Satan uses and has utilized down through the ages to keep people in darkness. Look at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. We're in chapter 19, verse 11. Now in Ephesus, when Paul gets there, he finds out that there's a group of people who are disciples, but they're not disciples of Jesus, they're disciples of John, John the Baptist. So if you go all the way back to John the Baptist's ministry, when he was proclaiming a ministry of repentance, preparing for the Messiah to come, there were people there who heard what John preached, and after they had repented and were waiting on the Messiah, they traveled back to Ephesus. And they've been in Ephesus all this time. They didn't know about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. They didn't know that the church had begun. They didn't know anything about Pentecost. They had simply repented to the gospel or to the, to the message that John had been proclaiming, and that is a message of repentance. But that message of repentance was to prepare them for Jesus the Messiah. And these people had never heard. So Paul gets there. He finds out that, that they've not heard about Jesus. He, he tells them about Jesus and what Jesus accomplished. And he finds out that they've not received the Holy Spirit. So Paul lays his hands on them. They receive the Holy Spirit. And then Paul begins to minister in Ephesus. And, and no doubt Paul is ministering right in the same areas where all of this witchcraft and sorcery, if you were to walk, down the streets of Ephesus, you would have had people selling you all kinds of, of trinkets, religious trinkets of all kinds. The, the area of Ephesus was completely overrun with religion, but they had bought into a lie. Not just one, but many. We know that Satan is the, is the primary liar. He is dishonest to the core. And anywhere we find his stronghold, we find we find lies, we find falsehood, we find deception. So Paul is in this area, and he's going to be there for almost three years. And as he's there, extraordinary things begin to happen. And that word extraordinary is unique. It says that there were miracles happening here that, that was unique to Ephesus. What was happening? It says that, it, so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So Paul, being a tent maker, tent making was a very difficult 
laborious job. He, he would sweat and he would work hard out in the sun building tents and, 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 and producing the leather that would go over the tents. It was a lot of hard work. And so, so Paul would have these sweat cloths that he would try, tie around his head that he would wipe the sweat off of his arms. So if you were to go to where Paul is making tents, you would find these sweat cloths laying all over, the, all over the place. And apparently, and it wasn't by Paul. Paul didn't initiate this from what we can tell in the text, but apparently the people began to get the sweat cloths, take those sweat cloths and distribute it among people who were sick, all kinds of diseases who were demon-possessed. And, and when the cloth that had the sweat of Paul in it, that had touched Paul's skin, when, when these people touched those cloths, they were healed. Is that not the craziest thing you've ever heard? It's amazing. It's incredible. We don't have an account like this anywhere else except right here. The closest we can get to it is when Jesus was walking through the streets and, and Luke we, we find out that, I think it's in Luke 8, where he's walking along, a woman with an issue of blood struggles through the crowd, touches his garment, and she's healed. The only other indication we find of something close to this is back in Acts 5. It says that, that Peter, that people were so desperate to be healed from their diseases that, that they would lay in the street hoping that, that Peter's shadow would fall upon them and they would be healed. Now, we don't know that people were actually healed by Peter's shadow. It doesn't say explicitly, but it seems to indicate that people thought that that would happen. So here we are in Ephesus, a place that is filled with sorcery and magic and witchcraft. And God is doing something here that is incredible, amazing, unlike anything he's done anywhere else. And why do you think he's doing that? Why do you think God would use something, a miracle such as this, in a place that is so dark and so desperate and so far away from the truth? Why do you think he would do that? Because God's love for this area is far greater than even Paul's. God has a love for Ephesus just like he has a love for you. And God will do amazing things to get your attention, to show you that he loves you and that there is truth to be found in this world. He does it specifically here because these people are desperate. And they're trusting in charms and spells and incantations and false worship and witchcraft, and that's all part of their landscape. And there's such darkness in this area. People needed to see that there's something real. They needed to see that, that there was a God who really is in control and that God, this God, the only true God, has the ability to step into time and space, to step into this place called Ephesus and do something through the hands of Paul to validate the message that Paul was already preaching. That God would heal people in a miraculous way simply to direct their attention towards the message that Paul was sharing. They, these people, were able to be healed when no one else could heal them. No doubt there were people here that spent their money, just like the woman with the issue of blood who'd spent all their money on all the charms and all the trinkets and all the incantations and, and all these people who said, we have truth, we know what you need, just give us your money and we'll take care of you, only to find out that it was all a lie. And then for the first time in their life, there's a guy who's preaching and teaching something that sounds totally different than anything they've ever heard. And then God validates that teaching with extraordinary miracles and ministries by the hands of Paul. So the gospel is being proclaimed. The miraculous power of God is on display in Ephesus, unlike anywhere else it had been. Look at verse 13. Then some, 
of that, the itinerant, this traveling Jewish exorcist, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So while all this is going on, and while God is working miracles, and while God is doing amazing things to validate Paul's message of the gospel, there are some sons of, of a man who claims to be a Jewish high priest. Now, when you look at the text, the English text, it looks like the names are Sceva, but it's actually Skuas is how it's pronounced. So these seven sons of this guy who claims to be a high priest, who were traveling from town to town, probably all through Ephesus, who were coming in and they said, look, we have a way for you to have a demon cast out of you. If you'll just pay us, if you will trust us, if you will listen to us, and especially pay us, then we will cast out demons. We will set you free. Now these Jewish exorcists noticed that Paul was able to do an amazing and powerful work. They saw that there was something about what Paul was doing that was more powerful than what they were offering. So guess what they do? Well, let's just take the same words that Paul is using. Let's take some of the same techniques that Paul is using, and let's use them, and then let's, let's build our business. Let's build our portfolio. Let's, let's expand our business, because make no mistake about it, these Jewish exorcists were in business. Just like all of the other soothsayers and magicians and witches all through Ephesus, they were selling a product, getting people to follow them, all for the sake of their own personal benefit and wealth. It's interesting that they say that they are the sons of a Jewish high priest. Look at verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest. The interesting thing about that is there is nowhere in any Jewish documents, and remember that the Jews are very good at documenting, there is no record anywhere of a man by this name who was a high priest. Nowhere. So the best that I can tell, the best that I can figure out in studying this, is that this father made this claim because saying that you are a high priest of any particular religion is going to get you a lot of attention. If you're selling a product, then you need to make sure that people understand that your product that you're selling, well, it's the real deal. So this high priest is no high priest at all. He's taken on a term, he's taken on a, a label, and that's all that it is. What's interesting is, is that the people were listening and they were tuned in to what these sons were saying. And what do these sons do? They simply take what Paul is saying and they begin to say the same things. We're going to cast out demons in the name of the Lord that Paul professes. Notice that it says, I adjure you. In other words, I convince you or I, I command you to come out. What's going on here? This is a strange, strange occurrence. Would you not agree? I mean, it's strange enough that Paul is... Is, is having the claws that are wiping sweat off of his body, that those claws are being used to heal people. That's strange in of itself. But these seven sons, who claim to be the sons of a high priest, who's no high priest at all, show up and they step out into the public and they say, okay, everybody line up. We're going to cast out demons, but we're going to cast them out in the name of the Jesus that Paul believes in. 
you know what's happening? That at the very moment the gospel of Jesus Christ begins to penetrate a dark area of witchcraft, sorcery, and false teaching, isn't it interesting that in that scenario, all of a sudden, a counterfeit comes forward? What do I mean by counterfeit? These seven Jewish sons, they knew nothing of Jesus Christ. If they did, it didn't matter because their life had not been changed by it. They, they knew nothing about the Jesus that Paul followed. They knew nothing about the Jesus that Paul professed. They knew nothing about the power of the Holy Spirit living in them. They knew nothing of it, but all they did is they took a name of something that seems to be working, co-opts it for their own ministry and their own business, begins to proclaim a Jesus they don't know with a power they don't have for the sole purpose of gaining money from those people, and I would offer mislead them. You see, the name of Jesus is not some kind of name we just throw around. You see, they knew the words, but not the Savior behind them. They invoked a Savior that they didn't know to cast out a demon they had no power over. They're nothing more than peddlers, counterfeits. I want to offer to you that I think this is strategic by Satan. I think this is strategic and that what we see Satan doing all through time and space, starting with the garden all the way through, what do we see him doing? Deceiving over and over and over again. And the thing about Satan you got to remember is, is what he'll do is he'll take a little bit of truth and a little bit of error and he'll mix it all together to where all you have is lies and falsehood. The scary thing about it is, is that there'll be some aspect of it that sounds correct. I mean, think about it. These particular sons are proclaiming the name of Jesus to cast out demons. The people in the community have been hearing the name of Jesus from what Paul was preaching and when he would cast out demons. So they were hearing that name. So they're thinking, the people would think, well, well, these guys are just like Paul, right? And that's what Satan does so well. In dark places, rarely do we ever see an affront to the gospel. What we will see is the gospel watered down. What we will see is the gospel counterfeits. What we will see is, is nothing that is light at all, but it proclaims itself to be light. But there's no power, there's no strength, there's no changed life. There's nothing there other than a person uttering the name of Jesus whom they don't know and have not been empowered by. And folks, can I offer to you? That throughout our culture and throughout our world, this is exactly what is happening. Satan has not changed his tactics. Because almost every week, I hear the name of Jesus used in a way that couldn't be further from the person I know to be Jesus. I hear the gospel being proclaimed in ways that's not the gospel at all. And it is misleading thousands and thousands of people. They think they're hearing the truth. They think they're hearing the gospel. They think they hear something about Jesus when, in fact, these people are nothing more than peddlers of a false gospel, counterfeits. So what Satan does is he, he waters the hole down. He waters everything down by introducing counterfeits that seem like they have a little bit of truth when in fact they have no truth at all. Notice what happens. This is an amazing story. I mean, this is incredible. It says here in verse 15, but the evil spirit answered him. Get this. This is crazy. This is amazing. So these, these sons... Yell out, I command you in the name of Jesus that Paul believes in to come out. 
And the demon goes, uh, wait a minute. Jesus I know. Notice that word I know. It's a Greek word. It's a Greek word, gnosko, and it means to know with experience. To know Jesus with experience. This demon says, Jesus I know. I know the Jesus that Paul follows. I know the Jesus that resurrected. I know the Jesus that one day will cast me into a pit. That Jesus I know because I've experienced him. And as we've seen all through the Gospels, there are places where these, these demon-possessed people, these demons cry and say, no, 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 we don't want anything to do with Jesus because we know his power. We know what he commands. You see, that Jesus the demon knew. Now this Paul, it says here, this Paul, we're familiar with Paul. Paul they recognize. Notice that. It's another Greek word, epistemi. This demon says, we know about Paul. We, we, we don't know him exactly the way we know Jesus, but we know Paul. How did they know Paul? Well, Paul's been going from city to city, stronghold to stronghold, places of darkness. People are coming to faith in Christ, and they're walking out of darkness in the light. So the demons knew exactly who Paul was. Paul was a threat to the kingdom, so they knew about Paul. So Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? So the demons cry out and say, who are you? Who do you think you are? And then Luke tells us that the demon leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Is that not the craziest thing you've ever heard? It's incredible. So these, these seven guys who think that they're going to wield the power of Jesus simply because they know the words and the incantations find out that they have no power at all. And I want you to know, I want you to understand that false gospels, counterfeit gospels, have no power inherent in them at all. Naming Jesus without knowing him personally and being filled with the Spirit, the darkness is powerless to stand against that. Naming Jesus without knowing him, trying to wield some power that you don't possess, using Jesus' name in, in some kind of way that, 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 that associates you with him, but you've never met him and you've never surrendered to him and you've never repented? Is it possible for church folk who have been going to church for years that have never surrendered to Christ, never repented, ever been born again, is it, is it possible for them to know all the terms of Christianity, to know all the fancy words, know the songs, know some scripture, but yet have never been changed by them? Absolutely. Is it possible to, to use Jesus' name as some kind of incantation to get what we want or to, to, to get some kind of, it's like some kind of special spell that we say that, that if we'll just say these things that, that Jesus is somehow obligated to act in our lives the way we want him to act? Is that how we think? Is that, are we acting in such ways and living in such ways where we've never met the Savior yet we talk about him? We have no power in and of ourselves and no power from him yet we talk about him as though we do? You've often heard me say that can't give away something you don't have. The thing about counterfeits, they're, they're powerless. Notice this. These guys have no power over this demon whatsoever. Counterfeit gospels are always powerless. They can't change your life. They make no difference. They can't fix your marriage. They, they, they can't bring you to a place. A false gospel could never bring you to a place to where you're right with God. Experiencing Christ is more than just knowing the lingo and knowing the songs and knowing the scripture and knowing the verses. Experiencing Christ 
is a life-changing event from the inside out. And eventually, counterfeits are always exposed. Counterfeit Christians are always exposed. Counterfeit movements are always exposed. You could, some people say, well, let's just fake it till we make it. The, fo- the fact is, is that you may think that you're fooling the world. You may be even trying to fool yourself. The fact is, is that what you've bought into is a counterfeit. And there's no power associated with a counterfeit. Often hear lots of false claims about Jesus on any given week, and it it often makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. I want to give you three that I've been hearing over and over. Counterfeits. And as, as the church continues to penetrate culture with the gospel, as we continue to, to go into dark places with the gospel, we're going to have more and more counterfeits where we have people out of one side of the mouth naming Jesus, but out of the other side of the mouth saying things that don't align anything with what Jesus taught, what the New Testament teaches, or what the Bible as a whole teaches. And we need to recognize them as counterfeits. And maybe, maybe some of you have bought into this counterfeit gospel. Let me give you the first one. I hear this almost every week. Now, I'm, I've named these kind of myself, so you know, stick with me here for just a minute. But they're they're offering a false Jesus. The first false Jesus I hear almost every week is a therapeutic Jesus. A therapeutic Jesus. Let me tell you about that one. Naming Jesus gives me all kinds of perks and blessings. I can, I can be associated with a church. I can be associated with a denomination. And, and, and naming the name of Jesus gives me some perks and blessings. And I would offer to you that that is the motivation. That Jesus is like some life enhancement. So I will name the name of Jesus around church people. I don't really bring him up around my friends too much. I will try to benefit from the church. I'll try to benefit from from what the gospel says. I'll try to get all the benefits, but with none of the sacrifice. I will will name the name of Jesus, but don't you dare ask me to change anything in my life. I want to sing the songs. I want to have a good worship experience. I want to even hear a good sermon, but not not too good where it, it challenges me. I want to be comfortable. I want to be... I want to be catered to. I want to be served, but I don't want to serve anyone else. Because for the person who's bought into this therapeutic Jesus, Jesus is about perks and gifts and blessings. And and when, when Jesus doesn't measure up and when Jesus doesn't do what we want him to do, then what do we do? We get angry with him. We get angry with the church. We get angry with anybody who names the name of Jesus until the blessings start flowing again. And then we're ready to sing those songs of old about how great Jesus is, only as long as he's making me comfortable. Man, there are whole churches that are teaching this mess. You get the Jesus that is altogether loving, but not the Jesus who says, take up a cross. You get the Jesus who's prepared a heaven for you, gold streets, pearly gates. Oh, you've got your ticket. Everything is good. But the Jesus asks you to go to the poor and the needy and the broken and those who are living in lifestyles that you adamantly disagree with. No, I can't do that because that's going to cost me something. Oh, we love to talk about the Jesus in, the, in Bethlehem. Oh, we love the Jesus of Christmas, but we, we don't care so much for the Jesus who's bloody hanging on a cross. Do you get where I'm going here? The therapeutic Jesus movement, the therapeutic gospel has as its focus you. 
You can find this pretty easily because I think we're all guilty at this at some point, even for those who've put our faith in Jesus. There's times along the journey where things get hard and we just, we just want to reap the blessings. We don't want the sacrifice. We're all guilty of this, but if you're on the other side, if you're, if you're in that place of darkness, if you've never crossed from darkness in the light, let me tell you about the dangers of this therapeutic Jesus that's being proclaimed all through our land. That The idea is, is that you can have Jesus and you can have heaven and you can have everything that comes along, all the perks, but you, you don't participate in the serving or the sacrifice. That's not the Jesus of the Bible because what are you going to do when Jesus comes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, not my will, but yours be done. What are you going to do with the Jesus who's washing the feet of the disciples, even his enemy, Judas? What are you going to do in that moment with this Jesus? Because I'll tell you the Jesus that came and laid down his life. He's not a therapeutic Jesus. His, his goal for you is not for you just to feel good. His goal for you is holiness. So that's the first Jesus I hear just about every week. Let me tell you about the other one. This one is very close, but, but a little bit different in focus. He's the social justice Jesus. Oh, my goodness, I'm hearing this over and over. With all the division that we have in our country right now, with all that's going on, uh, with all of this going on in, in, in public, we, we have people out there that are, that are saying that a lot of these movements are actually supported by Jesus. And if Jesus was here, he would jump into those movements, although they have very little Scripture to back that up. You see, this social justice Jesus really became very much in the forefront about the early in the 20th century. And it's early in that 20th century that we, we, start, we hear a lot of preaching and a lot of teaching, and we have a lot of commentaries that, that talk about Jesus, but they leave out the cross. And they replace the cross of Jesus, and they focus more on the good that Jesus did during his three and a half years of ministry, the people that he served, the outcasts, the broken. So what happens is, is the cross and the resurrection are supplanted with works of the ministry by which we make sure people have food and water and housing and shelter and clothes and on and on and education and, and all these things. Now, make sure you understand that as people who have been born again, we have a mandate. We have a mandate to go to the broken, the outcast, the poor. Are we to give water? Are we to provide food? Are we to provide shelter? Absolutely. But Jesus himself said, what, what, what is it good? What good is a man who, who gains the whole world, gets all of the education, gets all of the money, gets all of the food, has all of his needs met, and yet his soul ends up in hell? For Jesus and for the disciples and for the early church, absolutely they were meeting needs. But at the forefront of those needs being met was the gospel of Jesus Christ because the greatest need for any human being is to be reconciled to their creator. The social gospels, the social justice Jesus, he's not talking too much, or the ones who speak in his name are not talking too much about repentance and a cross where Jesus died to save sinners by which we are all caught in darkness, born into it. We're not hearing a lot about that. Instead, what they do is they focus on the Jesus of Matthew 25. And in Matthew 25, Jesus says, if you give someone a drink of water, you're giving it to me. If you, if you give someone shelter, you're, you're actually giving it to me, that you're ministering to me. And they focus so much on the fact that we are to, to meet needs that the greatest need is left out, and the greatest need is that you are made right with your Creator. So this social justice Jesus is everywhere. 
this, this counterfeit gospel is being proclaimed over and over. And if you're not careful, and this is the problem with all counterfeits, there seems to be a little bit of essence of truth there. At the end, it's a counterfeit because any Jesus where the cross and the resurrection is left out, that's not the gospel. Third, in the last one, there's more. I mean, we could, I could list 10 or 12 of these, but here's the three big, the three big ones that I see every, almost every day. Therapeutic Jesus, a social justice Jesus. And third, a lifestyle affirming Jesus. A lifestyle affirming Jesus. In other words, Jesus would never want me to stop living in a certain lifestyle. I mean, Jesus would never want me to be unhappy, to be, to be uncared for in this world. So, so therefore, I get to keep my lifestyle and I can follow Jesus at the same time. I can live any way that I want to. Because at the end of the day, Jesus wants me to be happy. And if this makes me happy, then I, Jesus would want me to give that up, right? I can engage sexual activity outside of marriage. It makes me happy. Certainly, Jesus wouldn't want me to give that up. I can, I can follow Jesus and participate in this. I can be LGBTQ+, because that makes me happy. And if it makes me happy, then then certainly Jesus wouldn't want me to stop. So therefore, laying down this lifestyle could not certainly be Jesus' will for my life. And anyone who says so is closed-minded, ignorant, racist, bigoted. You've heard all the terms, right? I can commit adultery on my spouse and follow Jesus. I can step out on my marriage vows. I can, I can, I can stand before a group of peers, even in a church building, and I can say to my spouse, till death do us part, but I can forget all of that. I can walk away from all of that because this other person just happens to make me happy. They, get, they know me. And my spouse no longer meets my needs. So certainly I can do that because, well, that's what my life is about now. I can have multiple partners. I can have an open marriage. All of this that I just mentioned is a direct attack on God's establishment of not only the marriage bond, but the family unit as a whole. What God established all the way back at creation, that is directly under attack. But it's through counterfeits. It's through a little bit of truth and a whole lot of error all mixed together where you hear these people on the news, you hear people, or you read blogs, you, you, you watch videos, you go, wow, that, you know, that, that sounds kind of right. That sounds, like, that sounds like that might be true. That sounds like that could, be, that, that could work. The people in, in Ephesus, when they heard the Jewish sons of the Jewish priests say, I adjure you in the name of Jesus that Paul proclaims, in that moment they thought, well, okay, these guys are no different than Paul. But when in fact, they didn't have what Paul had. The key words of this movement are love, unity, inclusion, acceptance. Well, the problem is this is apart from the gospel. The church, we, we're, we're about unity, we're about love, we're, we're about acceptance, but through a gospel lens. But your greatest need is to know Jesus, and by following him, you walk away from everything else. God's truth prevailed in Ephesus. I want you to see it. Look at verse, uh, look, look at verse uh, 17. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. 
And the name of the Lord Jesus, the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers, notice this. So there were people there who, who maybe under Paul's prior teachings had already come to faith in Christ, but notice what they were doing. They were still trying to assimilate their walk with Jesus with their sorcery. It says here, those who were now believers, these people who come out of the woodwork, they're going to bring their books of sorcery and spells and incantations and all these trinkets that they had gathered. They're going to bring them and they're going to burn them. These were people who had already heard about Jesus. These were people who were trying to assimilate their faith in Jesus with what the world was teaching them. We all have that struggle every day, right? Every one of us struggle every day with the, with the concept of dying to self. Every single day we struggle with, is this day going to be about me? Is this day going to be about a therapeutic Jesus? Is this day going to be about a social justice Jesus? Is this day going to be about a life-affirming Jesus? Or is this day going to be about a day where I surrender all to my king? All. All presupposition. All claims of truth to the one who is the truth, the embodiment of truth. Jesus said that he is the truth. Not that he just teaches the truth, that he is the truth incarnate. These people came to the conclusion that to follow Jesus means to walk away from everything else. It says here, verse 19, And a number of those who had practiced magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, I tried to do the math on that. I come up with a number of about $250,000. But then after I looked in a few commentaries, I found out I was wrong. Some of them were saying it was $4 million worth of silver. I don't know. I think what we can conclude here, it was a whole bunch of money. And what the point of that is, the reason that Luke gives us that is then when Jesus, when Jesus is, is, is accepted, when Jesus changes your life, nothing else in your life matters but Jesus. Not your lifestyle, not anything else in your life, that when you come to a confrontation or the realization that Jesus is the Savior, that He changes your life from the inside out, nothing else matters but following Him. Even 50,000 pieces of silver worth of books and incantation and trinkets. Is that who Jesus is in your life? That there's nothing in your life that is off limits to Christ. There's nothing in your life that you're not willing to lay down for the cause of Christ. If that's where the pain and the struggle is, or if you tried to assimilate your life with walking with Jesus, if you've tried to force Jesus into some mold that he's never going to fit into, if you've, if you've tried to reconcile the world, because your flesh desires that stuff in the world with walking with Jesus, one of two things is going to happen. One, you're going to find out that there's no power in your life whatsoever. You're going to find out there's just no hope or peace in your life, and you're going to come to the conclusion that you're lost. You've never been born again. That's, that's one possibility. The other possibility is that you've been born again, that you're living in a place of complete sin and disobedience to God, for, for Christ. And the, and the thing is, you can't stay there long. Christ won't let you stay there long. The conviction, the drawing power of the Holy Spirit, you'll come to this place where you have to repent. He'll make you miserable until you do. If that's missing, guess which camp you're in? You're in the first one. If, if, there's, no, if there's no inhibition, if there's no conviction, 
It could be that you've learned all the words, you know the songs, but you've never met Jesus. And can I offer to you that if you continue to travel towards that false light, if you continue, you continue to follow that false light, let me tell you where it's going to lead. Shipwreck. It's going to shipwreck your life. It's going to shipwreck everything that you hold dear. And just like those ships looking for a light, there's some wrong lights out there in this world. There are no light at all. You start following those. You start looking to those. You start looking for power. Is there any power in it? Is there any life change in it? Is there, is there any hope or peace in it? Is there, is there anything that, that causes me to lay down my life for the sake of His? If that's not there, then it's not truth and it's not light. And if you follow it, it's going to bring you to shipwreck. Far, new, far too many are crashing in that rocky shore where they thought they found truth. It was just another one of Satan's lies. Father in heaven, this story that Luke has provided for us is, is amazing. It's shocking. It's, it's, it's unnerving um, in so many ways. And Father, I, I believe that Luke included it for two reasons. One, to show the deception of Satan. And two, to show the difference between a life that's found the power of Christ and the gospel, that's willing to lay it all down, and those who are trying to assimilate to these false gospels that are no gospels at all. Father, I believe that those who are here today, those who are watching online, Father, I really do believe that there are some out there that the Holy Spirit is dealing with and has uncovered the fact that they're following a light that is no light at all. That they're following the opinions of humanity. They're they're being told about a Jesus who's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's some God that man has formed in his own image, and that leads to destruction. So, Father, I believe there's some today that need to come out of darkness in the light for the first time ever. They may have been a Baptist for 40 years. They may have been associated with the church for, for years, and people look at them and go, oh, well, they're, they're a Christian, when in fact, they know. They know deep down that he stand under your wrath. Today is the day of their freedom. No more false gospels, no more false teachings, no more false light. But Jesus Christ, Him crucified, Him resurrected, Him sitting with power and authority who gives life, offers life and freedom to all who repent and believe. Father, for the Christian who's been listening too much to its culture, too much to the culture and their truth claims, Father, may this be a day of repentance. May this be a day of restoration and refreshing to the truth of your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 